It's been a wild ride through the book of Hosea. We are now at the last chapter of the book in our four-part mini-series. Um, and I, one of the good things about having a child, I found out in uh, the 15, 16 months that Calvin's been with me, is that you get supplied with a broad swath of sermon illustrations that you can use at any moment. And uh, Calvin is a classic. I remember once I was out in the backyard and just doing general work out in the backyard when I hear this blood-curdling scream. And all of a sudden, my flight or fight response just like triggers, anxiety levels run, and Beck is up around the back of the house screaming because something is going on around there. And immediately I'm thinking, what is happening? And I dart up, I run around the side, and you would not believe it, there is little Calvin with a dead mouse in his hand. And the only thing that could be worse than having a dead mouse in your hand is if he thought that was a good time to put that mouse in his mouth. And I remember right at that moment, I almost freaked out too. We, we both yelled. He dropped the mouse in fright. I like whisked it away and put it in the bin. But I find that was a great illustration to describe our kind of love for sin and God's reaction to it. He comes around the corner and look at us with a dead mouse in our mouth, loving the sin that we have, and God is right to be horrified at the dumb things we do. And we can see all throughout the book of Hosea, God has that same reaction. He turns the corner, and what is Israel doing? There is a dead mouse in their hands. And they're thinking, this is a good idea, let's put this in my mouth. And we laugh, but in many ways... We are just as foolish. But God loves his people. And he wants to restore his people. He wants to bring them back into covenant relationship and fellowship with him. And Hosea 14 is one of the most powerful passages in all of the Bible. And the reason it is, is because God tells Israel, this is what you are to say to me. This is, in effect, Hosea's Lord's Prayer. This is the words that we have to take to God. And these are radically important words. And I've got three points I want to take you guys through in my sermon today. The first one is the road to repentance. My second point is the road to restoration. And my third point is the road to righteousness. So as we read God's word today in Hosea chapter 14, I want you to really focus on these words and what Hosea is saying. Let's read from verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the works of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. Now, Hosea is preparing Israel for a return to the Lord. Just like you may, in a way, return, uh, prepare for a job interview. Someone helps you formulate answers to the most common questions that you'll receive, or an attorney giving you the script to repeat to a judge. Hosea is giving to Israel the very words they need to speak to God. But first they need to return. 
they need to come to God to save them. The word return is this reoccurring theme throughout most of the verses of Hosea. When you've been heading in the wrong direction, at some point you have to stop walking. Because the further and further you walk, the further and further you end up going from where you want to be. This is what the word repentance basically means. Have you ever been lost in a city? And you're lost for ages and you finally flag down a stranger and you say, mate, I'm meant to get here, where am I supposed to go? And he says, oh, mate, it's complete opposite direction to where you've been walking. You're like, that's been like two kilometers and I'm going to walk all the way back just to get back to where I was. And it's frustrating. There are no shortcuts. There's no detours when your destination lies a full 180 degrees the complete other way. But every step back ultimately is a step back in the right direction. That's what repentance is. Uh, Hosea says that the Israelites have been stumbling because of their iniquity. You guys might think, what on earth is that word iniquity? Well, it means something grossly immoral, something evil. Israel needs to abandon this course. Not just abandon it, but run far away in the opposite direction. He says, we take with you words. And repentance, this idea of repentance starts with speaking. It starts with taking words through prayer. And prayer is as simple as focusing your mind on God and talking to Him. And Hosea is going to tell the Israelites exactly what they need to say to Him. So pay attention, because there are some very good things here. The first thing they need to do is to ask for forgiveness. Notice that first phrase here, take away all iniquity. What you are asking for is not simply that God forget what you have done, but that he take it away. You have now diagnosed the problem and the treatment lies with God and with God alone. You cannot solve it yourself. You plead to God to take away your iniquity. So often you hear people feeling that they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, that they can tick a whole bunch of boxes, and at the end of this three-week course, you will end up with all your problems solved. But unfortunately, the 21st century approach is not the way that we need to approach this. We need to come to God, and we need to rely on Him to remove the sin in our life. The King James Version translates this next section, I think, a bit more accurately than the ESV. The ESV quite woodenly translates the Hebrew into accept what is good. But this Hebrew phrase means a little bit, something more closely to receive us graciously. And it's a request that God receives you as you are. Not your life cleaned up, not your act together, not all religious boxes ticked. The Israelites needed to come to God as they were. Receive us graciously is what they needed to say to God. They needed to come to him for mercy. The King James Version continues, so we will render the calves of our lips. Another very interesting phrase in Hebrew. Uh, I'm sure that if we translated a bunch of Australian slang into Hebrew, the Hebrews, the Israelites would be like, what on earth is wrong with these Australians? They can't, everything they're saying doesn't make any sense. But the phrase makes complete sense to a Hebrew. The point of this is that God doesn't just want bulls or calves to be offered in sacrifice to him as much as he wants their hearts, their words, their speech, the things that they believe, the things that they hope in. Take a listen to Hosea 6.6. He says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, 
the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And this often shocks people who are on the fringe of faith, right? They think that God has a big, long list of busy work for them, a big, long list of busy things for them to get on to doing so that they may eventually earn the right, the privilege of being forgiven by Him. But we don't start with, earn your way back into God's keep. We start with, God, take away all iniquity, all iniquity. See, the shocking thing is, and perhaps more frightening, is that God doesn't want our box ticking. He wants us. He wants all of us. That's a bit more frightening, isn't it? In fact, most of us are like, oh, bring us back to the box ticking. At least we could just tick them off. At least we could just go through it. But really, how useless is our praise when we are merely mouthing the words? How useless is our prayers if we are only offering platitudes? How baseless our confessions if we are only pretending to be sorry for them? Have you ever had someone apologize to you? But you knew they weren't apologizing. Or it's kind of like a, a backwards apology. I'm sorry you felt that way. You can imagine your parents. Remember when your parents forced one of the siblings to say sorry? And when they come up and they say, I'm sorry. You know what they're really saying is, sorry I got caught. I have to say this. Let's just get this over and done with. But God simply will not accept mere outward performance, but inward reality. It's what we looked at before when we were talking about the word of God piercing right into the heart. He wants integrity. God wants honesty. He wants bluntness. Share with him where you really are. Don't offer platitudes, not flattery, nothing else. Psalm 51, 15 to 17. Listen to King David's words. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God you will not despise. A broken and contrite heart. What beautiful words. God will restore the one who is truly sorry. And this is the first real step in Christianity. This is the first real step to becoming a Christian. It's coming to this point of brokenness. Until you are broken over your sin, you cannot come to God. While you're prideful and arrogant and pretentious and snobby, and you feel superior to other people, we will find ourselves not forgiven by God, but opposed by God. Listen to James 4, 6. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the humble are those that come to the end of themselves. And this is what Hosea wants for the Israelites. You have to come to the end of yourself. You have to stop trusting in yourself. You have to stop thinking that everything's going to turn out all right. You have to renounce your false securities. You have to renounce your false hopes. All these extra things that you were chucking into that hole in your heart that only God can fill. All those extra things that you were trusting in, hoping in, finding security in, you have to renounce them. Because this is what he says in verse 3. This one you probably were scratching your head at. Number 3, Assyria shall not save us. This is the Israelites in their their speech to God. We will not ride on horses and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. 
In you, the orphan finds mercy. But when you have a bully that won't leave you alone, you really have two options. You can either stand up to them or you can appease them. Both are hard to do. Now, you must understand that Israel was in that position. Assyria was the regional superpower, this juggernaut that had steamrolled over all the nations around them, nation after nation, crumbling under the boot of the Assyrians. And Israel thought, you know how the best way to not get crushed under the Assyrian boot is to become their friends. That's what they did. They tried to form an alliance with Assyria. But just like when you start giving your lunch money to the bully, you'll soon find that what was a one-off occurrence starts to become a daily occurrence. What happens when you can't pay up? What happens when you've got no lunch money? What does the bully do then? This is exactly what happened. Assyria bled Israel dry and then invaded them and then wiped them off the map. They thought that Assyria would save them. And the very thing that was supposed to save them was the thing that crushed them. So alliance wasn't really alliance, just like the protection the mob offers a barber, he's not really protection. God doesn't call us to rely on the mercy of the powerful in this world. He calls us to rely on him. Renounce your security in the world is what God is saying to Israel. And then he moves on. Renounce your security in yourself. Hosea calls the people to renounce their horses. Now, as far as I know, most of you guys, I don't know anyone here that actually owns horses. And if you did own horses, I'm sure you wouldn't be tempted to trust in them or to place some level of security in them. However, the Israelites were living in a very different world to us. For thousands of years, horses were the fastest and strongest way to win in any battle. They were, in essence, the tanks of the ancient world. You would harness the power of this beast. It became a symbol of military power. And Hosea is not calling them to get rid of their horses, but to renounce their trust in their own military prowess, their trust in their own might and strength. And lastly, they must renounce their hope in false gods, in abstract gods. No more can they say our God to the idols that they have paid skilled craftsmen to create. So if you walked through an ancient country or kingdom in the 21st century, what you would find as you walked past are shrines and statues and temples. And right at the center of every ancient city was a temple to the patron god of that city. And the Israelites thought that that was a good idea. And so in Israel, there were beautiful statues of gods. There was temples built to their splendor. There was even small statues that you could create and bring into your house. You could burn a little pinch of incense to them so that they would watch over your house and protect you. And so the Israelites turned from their God. If you remember in the book of Joshua, when Jen was reading that passage out, they turned from that God, right? They turned from that God who had done all those things for them and turned to these little statues made by craftsmen and said, Oh, God of uh, Assyria, Ashur, oh, uh, oh, Molech and Baal and all these gods, please give us prosperity. Please give us the hopes of our hearts. Please give us all these things we're hoping for. Now, this passage is very contextual to the Israelites. I doubt any of us are trusting in these long dead ancient empires and their long dead gods. We're not hoping for our horses to save us from foreign invasion. We're not like, yeah, we'll get on our horses and we'll show those 
invaders, what's what. You know, some of those cowboys may foolishly run into battle like that, but we're not trusting in our horses. But the principle is the same, isn't it? Different contexts, but the principles are the same. What are our false securities? How would you complete this sentence? I will be really happy when. How would you complete that? My future will be secure if. What would you say? Did you think something like, when my husband or wife shows me love or respect, when I get more money, when I get married, when I get a new car, when I lose weight and get fit, when I can find new friends, when people just accept me. What did you say? Because how you answer that question will show you the God of your own hands. When we come to God, it's a recognition that nothing in this world can satisfy. Nothing can lead to flourishing except for our great God in heaven. Nothing can rescue us from death except for God, right? We see our trustings and securities in so much. During this season, we found many trust in medical science. And to our chagrin, everyone's getting COVID. And we thought we could get away from it. Not even the brightest minds could cure death. Not even close. Many trust in their government's military might. But history doesn't have a good track record. Every empire has risen and every empire has fallen. Our futures are not as secure as we would like to hope. But I'm not here to tear down your view of the world and offer you nothing in its place. Hosea offers something amazing in the place of everything that the Israelites are told to renounce. God doesn't come along with a whip and tell you, stop being a bad boy. Get rid of all this stuff. He doesn't do that at all. He says, renounce these false things and I will fill in their place something of far greater value and worth. In God, we have complete confidence. In God, the orphan finds mercy. In him, the lost in the world find their true father. What Hosea is calling to the Israelites to do is come home. Come home. The great church father Augustine says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Is your heart restless? Come to the place of rest. When we surrender to God, when we give our lives to Him, something amazing happens. Leads me to my second point, the road to restoration. Let's keep reading from verse 4. God says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance, fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. See, the moment that Israel repents and turns to God is the moment that God says, 
I will heal them. I will heal them immediately. He will heal them of their apostasy. You guys might not know what that word means, but the word apostasy means to abandon your beliefs or abandon your religion. And Israel has abandoned God. And God says, I will heal that. Your abandonment of me, I will heal that. I'll heal your rejection. And this is a very interesting idea that we find here. This means that not only will he lead us back to him, but he will keep us. He will hold us. He will heal us of our wayward walking. He will heal us of our abandonment of him. All those are truly, who are truly saved will never turn away from God for their whole life. They may find themselves struggling. They may find themselves in the valley, but God will hold them because he has healed them of their apostasy. He says, I will be like Jew to Israel. Now here in the Hunter Valley, if you get up early enough in the morning, I'm sure many of you can attest, there is Jew everywhere. It is wet. I can barely walk out to my chicken coop to feed my chickens without getting my thongs covered in water. Remember once we were all camping down with Gary a couple of years ago and you came out after the dew settled and it looked like there was a torrential downpour. There was that much dew settling on the ground. Hey, for us, dew is everywhere. I mean, the plants soak in every bit of moisture they can get, especially in our hot days in Australia. A place that has regular dew will be green and lush. The language is like that of a garden. Water seeping up from the ground, like the Garden of Eden. God says they will blossom like the lily. They'll take root like the trees of Lebanon. We actually see the uh, the region of Lebanon show up three times in this passage. Today, Lebanon is a beautiful country. If you ever get the opportunity to go there, it's a bit of a dangerous place, but it is a beautiful place. But during this time when Hosea was writing, it was particularly beautiful. The climate has changed quite significantly in the Middle East. But in Lebanon, it was a lavish, flourishing, fertile land. So when Hosea is comparing flourishing, he takes the best place that they can think of, which is at the time, Lebanon. And the promise is that God would be to Israel like a fertile land, that he will ensure that they flourish. And what is interesting is that Hosea says this. He says that his shoot shall spread out. Now, immediately, if you don't have like great uh, horticultural knowledge and all that kind of stuff, you may not know what's going on here. But if you've ever seen a tree stump that someone's cut down, a little tree stump sticking out, and then out of that tree stump comes a little shoot. Have you seen that happen before? If you want to see it, come to my house, because I have like seven uh, stumps out the front of my house, and they look like bushes. There are that many shoots coming out of these tree stumps. But it is a fascinating imagery that God is pulling on here. The idea is that when the tree is cut down, it is dead. And yet out of death comes this little shoot of life, this little return of the tree. What Hosea is describing is the spiritual transformation that occurs in an individual and a community when they turn to God. When they turn to him in repentance and faith. It will be to them their source of refreshment and their community will flourish like a new garden of Eden. It's beautiful language from Hosea. And actually reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. See, just like a dead tree stump, we are all dead in sin. We have been cut down. There is nothing there. We are spiritually dead in our trespasses, the walking dead. And yet we see in Ephesians that God is rich in mercy. And out of that dead tree stump, which is your life, comes a new shoot. New life springs up all of a sudden from something that we thought was dead. A new Christian life. And Jesus describes it as being born again. It's a new birth. A new beginning. A new garden. And I want you to know this. It's a miracle. And I'm not overstating it, even slightly. One of the most amazing things that can happen to an individual is when they are reborn. This is the miracle of regeneration. It is a powerful working within a human being when we believe in Jesus. When the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in someone's life and their life is completely changed forever. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that hovered over dark places in Genesis 1 and brought life to this planet is the same Spirit at work in those who believe. And how beautiful that language from Hosea. The same Spirit that caused trees and plants and shrubs to rise up from barren land is the same Spirit that brings spiritual life where there was spiritual death, where there was nothing but barrenness, where there was nothing but a wilderness and false securities and hopes and things that will not satisfy you. That moment when you believe and you take those words to God and you repent and you say, yes, Lord, I want you. I don't want this stuff anymore is the moment when you are reborn. And just like that little shoot that rises out of a dead tree stump, you are made alive in Christ. And this all happens Because God turned away his anger. Did you notice that in Hosea? It says that his anger will turn. But his anger has to go somewhere. You know, when you turn a river, you see some guys, they start to build new dams. They have to divert the river in order to build a new dam. That river's got to go somewhere. You don't divert it to nowhere and it just goes into some void. God's anger is the same. It has to flow somewhere. God has turned his righteous anger at sin away from us who believe and directed it instead on his own son. His anger fell on Jesus at the cross. Listen to 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see that big long word there, propitiation? Kind of hard to say. That word means to turn aside wrath. That's what the word literally means, turning aside wrath. Jesus became the substitution for us. That wrath fell on him so that we would never have to bear it. This is the gospel message. It's a word that comes to rebels 
and commands them to do a 180 degree turn. Without the work of God, it is impossible. No one will make that turn apart from the work of God. We are doomed except for Hosea 14. Right? God will heal us. God will cause new life to spring where there was only dead soil, new shoots where there was only a dead stump. And I've seen this way too many times in many different individuals to account for it in any other way. It is the greatest miracle you'll ever witness when a sinner, a rebel, someone walking out in the world, trusting in other things, turns to God and are reborn. You see the change in their life, the different desires, the different hopes. When you see men and women coming to God and being utterly transformed, they are new people. Praise God. How good is it? And when this occurs, Hosea says the transformation will be seen by everyone. Why? Because that person will bear fruit. You will know them by their fruit, Jesus says. That leads me to my third point, the road to righteousness. Let's finish the book of Hosea together. Verse 8. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. I mean, what has God to do with idols? The answer is rhetorical, nothing. There's only one in heaven who answers, and that is God. There's only one who looks after us, and that is God. He says, I am like an evergreen cypress. Notice this point. From me comes your fruit. God describes himself here like this enormous tree, and from him comes your fruit. And some of the more perceptive of us right now would have thought, this sounds a lot like something else that Jesus said. In John 15, verses 1 to 5, pay attention. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. When we first believe and come to him for forgiveness, he heals us. He causes new shoots to emerge. And in our early days as Christians, those little shoots, they can, they can be moved. Have you ever seen a little sapling tree and you grab it and you just can move it around, do whatever you want, snap it in two if you want. But the moment that tree turns into a sturdy oak, good luck. Good luck doing anything to that oak. And as we grow up, we grow stronger and stronger in the dwelling Holy Spirit. And what God looks for is transformation. That transformation produces fruit. How many of you guys have planted a fruit tree before? A few of you? Yeah. Now, you get pretty bummed out if you spend the, you know, few years waiting for this tree to bear fruit and then nothing comes off. 
It uses up all your soil, it uses up all your uh, space. And if it doesn't produce anything, then the tree just becomes like any other tree. But God doesn't want us to be just like any other tree. He wants us to produce fruit in keeping with repentance and in keeping with his character. The best thing you can think about it is you need to be a return for God. In his investment in you, you need to return an investment back to him by bearing fruit. And as the Holy Spirit indwells you, your character will change and you'll become more and more like God. You become steady, long-suffering, gracious, patient. Fruit comes from abiding in God. He says here, from me comes your fruit. You cannot bear fruit apart from God. And Christian, who isn't dwelt by the Holy Spirit, who does believe in Him, you cannot bear fruit apart from Jesus. Abide in Him. Hosea finishes by asking for the wise and the discerning. Are you wise? Are you discerning? He says, God's ways are upright. Walk in His ways. Ponder the book of Hosea. Read it. Reread it. Meditate long on its words, because God's word is good. If you are a Christian, use this moment to correct course. Test to see whether you have been heading in the right direction. The book of Hosea is a moment for us to take out our compass and see if we were heading north. Have we been becoming complacent, apathetic, or perhaps our eyes are wandering to different paths, Remember where your healing, hope, and security lies. Because one of the quickest things you find out when you go off the path that God calls you to is very quickly you find that you're fairly hopeless, you're fairly insecure, and you're fairly anxious about the world. But when you correct course and you get back on path, that's when you find healing. It lies in the love and mercy of your great God. And today here, if you are not a Christian, God is calling you to turn to him in faith for the forgiveness of your sins. If you turn to him and renounce your false securities and idols, God promises to cause life to grow where there is no life. He causes a shoot to come up where there is only a dead tree stump. He will cause flourishing where there is no flourishing. God is willing and ready to accept you. Do not clean the outside. Do not get your act together. Come as you are into his kingdom and he will welcome you with open arms. Turn to him. And so as we reflect on the book of Hosea, it's been a wild ride, hasn't it? It's been a beautiful book. As we've seen the prophet Hosea marry this prostitute, she turns away from him. She abandons him with his three children and then he wins her back. And we see God's heart in this prophet. But as we continue reading the book of Hosea, we see that this is more than just a good, cute little story for us. It is a real story of hope, the future of this world. Let's pray. Father, I pray first for my brothers and sisters here who know you, who love you, and are dwelt by your Holy Spirit. I pray for these people who 
in many ways, are wonderful examples of godliness and faithfulness and have walked the path and has stayed firm to that narrow way. But Father, even the best of us stumble and even the best of us fall in the ditch. Father, would the book of Hosea write the course for us? Would those who are hungry for your word go home and read the book of Hosea for themselves? Would they meditate long on its words? Would they see where their lives shape up and the similarities between them and Israel and how good you are and how good of a God you are and how much you love us? I pray, Lord, for the Christians who are complacent and apathetic and it's been a long time since they felt the joy in the Lord. Would you rouse them by your Holy Spirit? Would they once again feel this amazing joy being part of your kingdom and being included with your people? Would they flourish and grow? And Father, I pray for those who do not know you yet. Father, would they take words and speak? Would they pray to you and confess their sins and seek forgiveness? Would they lay out all their false securities bare and say, Lord, fill this hole, fill this lacking that I've been feeling. Come into my life, Lord. Change me, transform me by your Holy Spirit. As your son Jesus says, we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children. How much more will our Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And Father, I know that you answer our prayers. And so I pray these things in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.